This morning, again, we pick up our series entitled Hall of Faith, and now we actually begin to look at some of our inductees. Just recently, being a Bears fan, Brian Urlacher was a first ballot Hall of Fame inductee. He made it on the very first time, and that's a real achievement. I believe his numbers and his career warranted it, but it's a real achievement that even took him back and caused him to have a moment of pause because he knew that he was going to be enshrined for as long as the museum or the Hall of Fame there in Canton lasts. Before you is the written word of God. It has already survived thousands of years through difficult times and tribulations through the history and the annals of mankind. And today before us, we come to our first inductee, one named Abel. In actuality, we know very little about Abel. And because of that, many have felt the necessity to add speculation and conjecture to the discussion of Abel's life by using extra-biblical or non-biblical or historical uh, resources that parallel the time that these books were written. You will hear a lot about this in Christianity today, and you do need to exercise a certain degree of caution. I bring it to your attention because I'm not only trying to help you understand what the Word says, but how we come to that interpretive value of the Word together. One of the elements or resources individuals are using today are extra-biblical sources. And you're going to hear that term used uh, pretty much going forward, I think. It is a fascinating new study. It is looking at books and letters, anything that was written around the same time of the book of Hebrews that isn't in our Bible, but written at that exact same time and speaks on the subject of, say, the person of Abel. And when you have such a little amount of information, it is very tempting to go to those extra biblical resources and to draw information from them and create for yourself a, a profile, if you, if, if, if you were, of speculation and conjecture. Because those sources are not inspired by God, they should not be treated as inspired resources and therefore, they should not carry the same weight the Scriptures do. And that's what makes the Scriptures unique. This is not a merely a piece of literature before you. We cannot treat it as a simple piece of literature. It is the inspired Word of God. And therefore, when we look to interpret the Word of God, we start with the Word of God. To, go, to give us insight and to light up a verse for us, or to expound upon a subject that we find within any individual verse throughout the Bible. When it comes to Abel, we find him in Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. And what I would like to do to encourage you as we go forward in our look at the Hall of Faith, we are now inside the uh, museum, we have gone through the entrance, we've made our way through the to the, uh, the hallway, we've made our way into the exhibit hall, and now we are finally looking at the first inductee, and they are in chronological order, it's from the beginning until more recent, 
And we come to this individual named Abel that we find in Genesis 4, 1 through 10. Now, going forward, here's what I'd like you to do. Here's homework for you to take home with you. For example, the next individual that we will look at is Enoch. Now, you may not know a lot about Enoch. I would strongly suggest that you go back into the Old Testament and and not only read Hebrews, but also read the original account that's found in the Old Testament. If you are handy with what's called a concordance, you may then want to use your concordance and find out each and every time that Enoch is mentioned throughout the Bible to give you as much information and background about the individual before we look at the the reason uh, uh, for his faith, his exercising of that faith, and then his, his commendation by God for his faith. You'll get a much deeper perspective. It'll be more well-rounded. It'll be three-dimension rather than two-dimensional. And that's what I'd like to do with Abel. So if, let's begin this morning by understanding that each inductee, we are going to find four common denominators amongst each and every one of them. And I've summed them up for you. The first is this. Number one, each of these inductees was spoken to by God through his word. The word of God, they heard it, either spoken to them or read it, or he talked to them directly, whatever it was, they heard the spoken word of God. Today we find that in his word, and that still small voice that accompanies his word. Number two, they were moved by the word of God and stirred inwardly. They just couldn't rest with what they had just been told or given. It motivated them to do what came next. So they were stirred by the word of God. Number three, they obeyed the word of God. It wasn't just that they were moved inwardly. It wasn't just a moment that they had. They acted upon that moment. And so they obeyed the word of God, number three. And number four, God commends them for their action and counts, to the, counts them righteous for the faith in which was exercised. And those are the four common denominators that we see through each of these inductees here in the Hall of Faith. And as we look at the individual Abel, let's begin by verse 4, chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews. And each inductee will be identified by these two words, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks today. We find that these two words will be on the plaques in front of each of the individuals inducted into the hall of faith by faith by faith every time you see that highlight it that's you know we're starting a new inductee we're looking at a new person by faith what is faith verse 1 of chapter 11 now faith is the assurance of things hoped for the convictions of things not seen 
for by it the people of old received their accommodation. Verse 6, when we come to Enoch next week, we're reminded of this truth concerning faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And this is what we are looking to uh, develop in our own personal lives with God, this faith that is based on a knowledge of him, knowing that he exists, and in that it states his existence, his character, uh, who he is, etc. But also that he rewards those who seek him, that then puts us on a course to seek him diligently with all of our heart. And the first individual that we are faced or met with is Abel. Who is Abel? Abel is the second born of Adam and Eve. So we are going all the way back to the beginning of the history of man itself. And Abel was commended by God for bringing a superior sacrifice to God compared to his brother, his older brother, Cain. God accepted Abel's sacrifice and rejected Cain's. And as a result, it turned the heart of Cain against his brother and Cain killed his brother. And the first sin that we see then after the fall is that of murder, a brother murdering a brother. So for our exploration this morning and our understanding of the life of Abel, we must understand what was superior about the sacrifice in which Abel offered and what can we learn from that today? What provoked Cain to the point that Cain killed his own brother? In Genesis 4, it is, it is evident that Cain is the focal point of the conversation. But here it is Abel that is commended for that faith in which he exercised, for that sacrifice in which he brought unto the Lord. So let's fill in some of the background by taking a little trip back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. And if you hit the index, you know, turn right. It's the very first book. And notice with me, as we read the ten, chap uh, the ten verses together, and Abraham knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. And now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. So one was a shepherd, the other one was a farmer. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions, or the fatlings, the best of. And the Lord regarded or accepted uh, for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell, or his countenance fell. He was angry now towards his brother. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? I like that line. I'm going to use that. Excuse me, why has your face fallen off? 
If you do well, will you not be accepted? This is God speaking to Cain. He had the opportunity to rectify the problem, but chose not to. And if you do not, well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Abel is commended by God for the offering in which he gave unto the Lord. Now this is in a period of time, and I'm going to give you a big word, and it might be a little bit too big for a Sunday morning if you haven't had your coffee yet. The word is antediluvian. We're in the antediluvian period of the Bible. This is before the flood. This is a period of time where between Adam and Eve and Noah... And already the manner in which God must be approached is through sacrifice. It appears that they were instructed by their mother and father, that is Adam and Eve, on the proper manner in which to approach God. When Adam and Eve sinned, and God then went searching for them, it's interesting they ran and hid from God, and God then came to the garden and walked through the garden, calling out to them, looking for them, and then finding them, asking them why they are hiding, and discovering, of course, God knew this beforehand, but then discovering from them that they had eaten from the one tree that was forbidden to them. And as a result, now sin, and therefore the consequence of sin, death had entered into the world, and their relationship with God was now being severed by this sin. So God, seeing their nakedness, they're aware of their nakedness, took two animals and killed them before Adam and Eve and used their skins to clothe Adam and Eve. And most Jewish scholars, along with uh, evangelical ones, believe that this was the point in which Adam and Eve realized that sin either is going to be borne by the individual who has sinned, meaning you're going to pay for it yourself, or a substitute must be rendered. Someone else in your place. And on this particular occasion, the two substitutes were the animals that God struck, killed, and then took their uh, skins and wrapped them around Adam and Eve to cover their nakedness, to cover their sin. And so Adam and Eve appear to have instructed their children, Cain and Abel, on approaching God through sacrifice. And in so doing, we find here in chapter 4, they are already now practicing this, in which they apparently have been instructed in. But God disregards Cain's offering and accepts Abel's. Now, if we compare the two, we find that there are distinct differences between the two offerings. This is one of the most uh, highly debated uh, subjects when it comes to Cain and Abel. What was the quality of the sacrifice that caused God to accept one and reject the other? 
Well, we know first and foremost that Cain was a farmer. He worked in the agricultural aspect of society. And he brought to God the uh, fruit of the land, whatever that may be, whatever he was growing at that time, and offered that unto God. However, though, Abel was a shepherd. And he therefore took a sheep, and it says very clearly in chapter 4, it says in the ESV in this portion of fat portions, but it's the fatling, it was the best of his sheep and sacrificed it unto God. And therefore God accepted Abel's and rejected Cain's. But was it simply due to the fact that one was a blood sacrifice and the other one was an agricultural sacrifice, fruits and vegetables, etc.? We know that when the Mosaic Covenant is established through Moses, that grain offerings are accepted. Now again, we are way prior to that. We are in this antediluvian period, before Noah, before the reduction of mankind to eight people. And we have no indication that this grain offering had been prescribed. The only indication that we have is that Adam and Eve witnessed God slaughter two animals on their behalf. So it is appearing to us that God did not prescribe the grain offering at this particular time for the remission of sin. That's another aspect we must take into consideration. For the remission of sin. Again, the individual either bearing that sin for themselves and then the consequences thereof and the wages of sin is what? Death. Or finding a substitute, one that will bear that burden on your behalf. In our society today, sin isn't nearly as serious as it once was. In fact, even through the Bible, we find that even in the presence of God's glory, in His greatness, in His great uh, experiences with His people, they always tended to diminish the seriousness of sin and therefore easily enter into it. In fact, today, it's, it's so common for us to look at sin and instead of being appalled or shocked or taken back, we laugh at it because it's often presented to us in an entertaining fashion. And as we laugh at it, what we are doing is we are desensitizing ourselves to the seriousness of it. And therefore, well, we really don't think of it as that bad. And that's why most people think that they are good people and that's why they're going to heaven. That's why most people believe that, well, certain sins are near, not nearly as serious as other sins. Like, you know, you know that murder is way more serious to God than lying is. But is that true? God says he hates liars. I didn't say that he did. God says that liars will find their place in the lake of fire in the book of Revelation. So lying and murder are equally grave sins before God, but we have certainly changed the balance of those scales, haven't we? 
And therefore, we become very dismissing to our own sin, don't we? And when we start feeling a little convicted or guilty about the sin that we are entertaining ourselves with, we often justify ourselves by comparing ourselves to someone else in the church who's worse off than we are. You know, I'm feeling a little convicted about watching this. I'm feeling a little convicted about doing this and so forth. But you know what? I am not nearly as bad as Chris is. And now that I think of it, I feel pretty good about myself. But Chris is certainly not the standard. And therefore, you are setting up for yourself a false dichotomy right away. The standard is Christ. And anyone before Jesus Christ is going to be uh, quickly uh, discovering how sinful they actually are. And so it's important that we never lose the seriousness of sin before God. And every time I start to drift, and and I do too, because I live in the same society you do, I remind myself of what Jesus Christ needed to go through to remedy the issue of sin in my life. Scourged 39 times by a cat and nine tail. Mocked. They put a hood over him and then they beat him with their fists and then with a stick. They spit upon him. They put a crown of thorns on his head and took him and robed him in a purple robe, which was probably the undergarment of the saddle of the Roman soldier that would absorb the sweat of the animal and also the sweat of the soldier above. Horrific smelling, if not laundered. And he was robed with this on my behalf. He then was humiliated by having to carry his cross after his back had been torn open so significantly by the the cat nine tails, only to end up and to discover himself on the Mount of Golgotha, Calvary, where he was then crucified between two thieves. And he didn't do it for himself. He didn't die because he did something wrong himself. He did it for me. He did it for you. He did it for this world. And so the sacrifice, either we're going to bear and bore our own sins before God and pay the penalty, which is death, eternal death, or we're going to find a substitute. That substitute is none other than the person of Jesus Christ, if you will believe and receive him as your Savior. He has offered himself for you. Now will you by faith receive what he has offered for you to you? But here we have this sacrifice. And comparing it to Cain's, we find the difference in one was living and one was dead. But the real aspect of all of it is found in the first two words of Hebrews 11.4. Now Matthew tells us that Abel was a righteous man before the Lord. And that righteousness was imputed to these individuals because of their faith in God. And as as a result, God called them righteous, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But see, Abel appears to have believed God. He saw God, he was instructed, he did what God had told him to do, and he did it the way God wanted him to do it. Cain, on the other hand, appears to be devising for himself, and we know that Cain was never a right man before God, The New Testament makes that clear. 
Cain wanted to do it his way, on his terms. He wanted to approach God in the manner that was fitting to him rather than the manner in which God had prescribed. And this, my friends, is the birth of human religion. When man says, I don't want to do it in the manner in which God has fashioned it to be done, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to approach God my way on my terms. That's religion. It is man's endeavor to bridge that gap between fallen man and holy God in and of themselves, which is an impossibility completely. They never can do that. We were in a hopeless position, destined to die, and if it weren't for the grace of God reaching from his position to ours through the person of Jesus Christ, we would have remained dead in our trespasses and sin. And so let us understand that man is constantly and always trying to find a way to get around Jesus Christ and to be right with God through religion in which he creates. And that appears to be the issue here. Cain approaching God on his own terms rather than on the terms in which God had instructed or prescribed for them to approach him. And as a result, God refused his sacrifice. Now let me ask you a question. The grace of God is still displayed even in that rejection, isn't it? And this is something I think individuals overlook. God says, Cain, why has your face fallen off? Let's just just say that for fun. It's just fine. Cain, your face has fallen off. Why? And he's pleading with Cain. And what does he say next? If If you do well, will not your offering be accepted too? Cain made a choice, didn't he? Cain refused to obey God. It wasn't that he was destined to refuse God. He made a choice to refuse God. And God, our loving Father, is pleading with him. I mean, if he was simply destined for ruin, God would have never offered it to him. It's like, you know, if you do well, you possibly could be good with me too. Uh, uh, uh. No, not, 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 not so much, right? That constant grace. Oh, Cain, if you would just come. Look what he says in verse 6 of chapter 4 of Genesis. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And it is desire is for you. But then what does God say? But you must rule over it. You must resist it. That temptation to do what comes next. Which of course would be to kill his brother Abel. From the very beginning, the grace of God. The invitation. Even though his offering was not pleasing unto God, God says, listen, if you do it the right way, you will be pleasing unto me. One summed it up this way. If I may just quickly read this to you. He says, very simply, Abel believed God. He recognized just what Scripture says, 
that he was sinful and imperfect and that he could never be accepted by, uh, acceptable to God who is perfect and holy. Not until his sins and their guilt had been paid for and removed. Abel knew that his sin had to be removed and that he had to be counted righteous before God if he could ever then possibly be accepted by God. Therefore, he believed God would count him righteous if he let another bear his sins for him. He believed exactly what the scripture proclaims to us. That is the difference between the two. That by faith, he listened to God, he obeyed God, he approached God in the manner in which God prescribed, and he was counted righteous for his endeavor. Now, I need to talk about this theological point because I think it escapes many Christians today. We often state that when we got saved, we were forgiven of all of our sin, past, present, and future. Is that a true statement? Yes or no, folks? Absolutely. But we often don't consider the furthering of that reality and truth. It's not that we were simply just forgiven, which is fantastic in and of itself. Of all sin, past, present, and future in the finished work of Jesus Christ. But if we were to stand before God simply in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, we would have a zero net gain when it comes to God. Because there are two types of sin, are there not? There are sins of commission, sins where I do what I am not supposed to do. I'm committing that sin as a sin of commission. But there are also sins of omission. I know what is right to do and I do not do it. So though God forgave me of my sins, past, present, and future, that brought me to a zero-sum gain. But I needed to be justified before God the Father. I needed to be counted as righteous before God. Let me use another word. I needed to be considered perfect before God before I could enter into his presence. Now, I don't know about you, but I still have not risen to the level of perfection. It might shock you. You might think about going to another church after hearing that. I understand. I personally now, being a pastor of 20-some years, have never been to an individual who hosted a completely sanctified party. I am completely sanctified and now perfect in the sight of Christ because I no longer have any sin within me. I no longer commit sin of any uh, form or nature whatsoever. Is that a possibility in our human flesh? No, absolutely not. In fact, the Bible makes it clear that the flesh and the spirit, the two parts of our being, war against each other constantly. But practically, though I still wrestle with the old nature, and practically, I do still fall into sin at time to time, and hopefully that's becoming less and less over time. Before God, I am seen through Christ as perfect. Now, how can that possibly be? It seems like it's inconsistent. Because God is looking at me 
and I know what I look like, but he's seeing me in a perfected state. How is that possible? It's possible because not only did Christ wash me clean of my sin, past, present, and future, he then robed me with the righteousness of himself. And therefore, he looks at me through Christ and he sees me perfect before him, even though practically I am still a work in progress and I haven't yet arrived. But when I see my Lord, when he returns for me, when I die to go to heaven and to be with him for all eternity, and I'm transformed into that glorious body that I am certainly waiting for, then I'll have that state of perfection. And the reality and the perception will line perfectly. But until then, I am adorned with the righteousness of Christ. It's imputed unto me. And we as Christians, when we come to worship the Lord, let us not only worship him for the sin in which he has forgiven us, let us also worship him for the, the, the uh, righteousness in which he's adorned us with, right? Turn with me to Romans chapter 5, if you will. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Paul articulates this reality, this theological point for us beautifully. Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, speaking of Adam, of course, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, meaning the time before the Ten Commandments were given in this antediluvian period that we are looking at in the life of Abel. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Moses, I'm sorry, from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgressions of Adam who was a type of the one who was to come. So he's making this statement in a very Pauline fashion. Adam sinned, and therefore everyone born after Adam was born with a sin nature. That sin nature was indicated by the death of the individual. Even before the law existed to amplify and to explain and to bring the sin uh, forward, it was already apparent that sin dominated from that time from Adam to Moses. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one's trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. There it is, righteousness, justified before God. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life 
through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came into the increase the trespass, but where sin increases, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's fantastic. And deserves an amen, don't you think? Amen. The righteousness that we have been given through the person of Jesus Christ. It was this that Abel looked forward to. Seeing his animal in which he sacrificed the best that he had by faith to God, looking forward to what God was one day going to do. Well, Eric, how do you know that Abel knew what God was going to do back then? I mean, this is before Abraham's demonstration of taking his son up on top of Mount Moriah. This is before Moses and his interaction with God there at Mount Sinai. How do we know that Abel knew? Because from the very beginning, the promise of one coming was given to Eve at Genesis 3.15 that would crush the head of the serpent with his heel. And Abel believed that one was coming that would be his substitute. But until that substitute arrived, he therefore allowed this animal to cover the sins, not wash them away permanently. The animal sacrifices couldn't do that for the individual looking forward to what Jesus Christ was going to do once and for all for him. Cain, given the opportunity even to repent at that moment, still refused and allowed that sin that was birthed in his heart and mind to take full fruition and to destroy his brother. His brother Abel, who then fell dead before him. And his blood, as God stated in Genesis 4, still cries out to this day. In fact, in our text this morning, we read that through faith, he still speaks today, even though he is dead. He is an example to you and I. Now, if I may, I would like to offer you a, uh, something to consider and to chew upon for yourself. I don't think that it is any accident whatsoever that Cain killed his brother after the invitation of God to make things right and to make things well. I believe that Cain fully knew that a blood sacrifice had to be made on his behalf to be right with God. But whose blood did he turn to? Not an animal, but his own brother. Very interesting thing to consider. Fine. You want a substitute? You want a sacrifice? Here, let it be Abel, my brother. And of course, you see the sin and the wickedness within that all. Possibly justified. Simply wanting to appease 
God. But we don't need a sacrifice such as that to appease God. One has been sacrificed on our behalf that has already appeased God, and that is Jesus Christ. We don't look forward any longer to it, do we? We look back. And hindsight is always 2020. The Proverbs writer Solomon wrote in Proverbs 15, 8, and 9, and we'll conclude with this. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him who pursues righteousness, undoubtedly perfectly summarizing everything that we have read to this point. But as I stated from the beginning of our time here in this series, we want to look at what Abel overcame that you and I can apply and uh, adopt for ourselves to help us to overcome and therefore to be commended by God for the faith in which we have. Though we are not being commended in the sense of our sacrifice being offered, but we are being commended in the sense of being blessed by God and rewarded by the Lord. We don't do it for righteousness any longer. That is fulfilled through the person of Jesus Christ. So what can we look at in the life of Abel and learn from? A very important lesson. And I believe this is why Abel is first. We must believe God and do what God has told us to do the way God has prescribed us to do it. Let me put it to you this way. God said it. I believe it. Let's do it. That's what we need to understand as Christians. We need to do it the way God has prescribed it, and therefore we need to do it in the manner in which God has prescribed it. That's what we learn from this. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. What's the next word? What? No one comes to the Father but through me. Is there any other way to God except Jesus Christ? Can we put that to rest once and for all? Because this is what Jesus said. Trying to devise any other way creates a, a, a parallel to that illustration in which Jesus gave of a thief trying to hop the fence and kill and destroy the sheep and so forth. We can't do it. We need to do it God's way. And I don't care what it is in your life, you need to do it the way God said to do it. It's not just salvation, it's our sanctification too in Him. It's everything that we do as believers in Jesus Christ. We need to do it the way God has stated it to be done. Well, why are we having relationship problems? Because we're not doing it the way God has stated it to be done. Why are we having marital problems? Why are we having parenting problems? Why are we having, we're not doing it the way God has said it to be done. It doesn't mean that's going to be the easiest way to do it, right? That's going to be the most challenging. And it might not work on our timetable. God's timetable is completely different than ours often. And so he is looking at his end game and we have ours in sight and often they don't correspond with, with one to another. We need to do everything the way God has prescribed it to be done. It's not going to work otherwise. And that's what Abel did, by faith. And what we do with God, we do by faith. 
hearing his word, being stirred with inside of ourselves by that word, obeying that word, and then letting God bless those things that we do by faith.